Good morning. Well, I was going to start off by telling the table leaders that um, the printer didn't work at the church so that your discussion questions would be in that email and you could just look them up, but it's already um, 1130, so guess what? You won't get to discussion. So (laughs) they're right. I go long, and this one's going to be long. Um, Dave has started us off in this relationship series. Last week he taught part one. I'm part two. And he taught you last week this really amazing and strange and glorious mystery that God designed this thing called marriage for a really high calling. And that high calling is this. In our marriages, we are to show the world the relationship, what it means when people hear the words together, Christ and his church. Our marriages are evangelistic. They spread the good news. They tell people about this kingdom of God. As they watch a man love his wife and they watch a wife love her husband, they are supposed to get a really clear picture of what that looks like. And when they watch him protect her sacrificially, they're seeing what Christ does for his church. And when they watch her honor him and respect him, they watch what happens between the church to Christ. We forget that these things called Christ and the church are not man-made. These are not words we all came up with. These are not concepts that came from mankind. Way back at the beginning of history, no one thought of this. God gave this word, Christ, and he gave this word, church, and he joined the two together. He created them. And when God created man and and woman at the very beginning in Genesis 1, he did so in an amazing way where they are equal in so many ways in value, in dignity, in significance, and they, they, um, they, they equally show off God to the world. That level of responsibility and glory is one thing, but then when they come together, when a man and a woman come together in marriage, they do more than simply display God to the world. That new union of two becoming one bears the weight the responsibility, and the glory of showing the relationship between Christ and his church. This is why the church thinks so much of marriage. This is why we honor it. This is why we fight when people try to redefine it. This is why we say to people, you don't get to say, we will do with it as we will, marry who we want, because it's given as a gift to the world by God. It is not a creation of man. I want you to think about it like this. If you find a piece of paper on the floor today and you wad that up or throw it away or you make a paper airplane out of it or you burn it, well, not here, go home and burn it, we don't care. It's a piece of trash. But if you go to the Louvre in Paris and if you can get past the security guards, past the bulletproof glass, to the Mona Lisa, it matters to us how you treat it because it's a masterpiece. It's a work of art. This is how I want you to consider marriage. It is God's master display. It is the master design of God of what Christ and his church is like. That's the high purpose of marriage. But in that display and in this same passage in Ephesians 5, God tells us that there's another thing that happens that was designed to happen in marriage. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 5. Of course, it'll be on the screen as it always is. Ephesians chapter 5. 
We're going to start in verse 21, which as you can tell in the middle of a sentence, Paul is in chapter 5 telling us how we're supposed to behave towards one another. And he gets to this thought, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he means that for all the people in the church, male and female. Dave and I, obviously not married. I don't submit to him the way I would submit to my husband. He submits to me, I submit to him. We are mutually yielding our rights to love one another well. I yield to Rebecca Cagle the same way I yield to Dave Tate, out of love for them, out of wanting to honor them, out of hoping to serve them well. But it's not males over females. Males and females in the world submit to one another. But that causes Paul to think, I need to expand on this thought. So he gives us the relationship between wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also should the wives submit in everything to their husbands. Next slide. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle of, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Last slide. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and his church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. These words from Paul give us the guidelines from God about how best this relationship will display Christ. As a man comes towards his wife and loves her more than he loves himself, and as a woman comes toward the husband, and the world watches this strong, confident, valuable woman yield her right to be right to her husband, they learn something profound, something that can't really be explained fully in words. Paul called it a mystery, something hidden, something we seek out, something we work to figure out. When those two come together well, the world literally sees Christ and his church. But notice back there in verse 26, it's actually the next slide. Notice how he said it. He's talking about how much Christ loves the church, how he gave himself up for the church. And then he tells us a purpose in it, that he might sanctify her. Our Christ gave up himself for man and woman to do this in us. This isn't like this is what Christ does for women because he's representing the husband. No, this is for all of us, his church, all of us. He gave himself up and placed in this relationship to sanctify us. What does that word mean? Well, it has kind of two connotations. The first way it can mean is set apart for a holy use. So, for example, when God gave the Israelites the temple and he had them build it, there were things inside of that temple that were in every home. There were bowls in the temple. There's bowls in their houses. There's tables in there. There's tables in their houses. They had bread. The temple had bread. But those things that were in the temple were called sanctified. 
they were set apart for God's use, which meant there were rules about how those things could be used. You can't treat them however you want to treat them. You don't get to touch them however you want to touch them or whenever you want to touch them. You do it by God's prescribed way. And if you didn't, the penalty for touching just a bowl was death. You were not allowed, even in the temple, where that bowl is sitting, unless you were a certain person selected for that job. That's one thing that sanctified means. It, the same is true for us. We were once common. We were once part of the world. And God set us apart for his own use. He set you apart. He made you holy. He made you his We are new creations, but that new creation in me is not yet finished. So the Bible also uses this word sanctify as a continuing progressive thing. We are being sanctified. What will be of me, Christ in me, is not yet complete. And God tells us that we are being sanctified all on the way. More and more, he is making us holy. He is changing us from the inside out. That happens in many ways through the preaching of the word, through a good book about God you might read, through worship, through prayer, through fellowship, through being in the church together. But one way it happens, as we find out here, is in the arena of marriage. Ask any married person if God has used their spouse to sanctify them, to change them. And they will nod, yes, but they'll probably do it with a bit of a grimace, a a bit of pain on their faces. Because this change that happens in marriage is not easy. It's not hard to be married to someone. It's hard to be married to someone well. It's hard to do it right. I knew that even as an unbeliever. Here's a pic for you. There we are. Oh, no. Those sleeves can't get much higher. Yes, girls, that that dress is available to you for your wedding if you ever want it. Um, Yeah, and the headpiece, don't forget. That was actually a small headpiece at the time. The 80s, uh, we could have feathers. I could have gone all out, but I didn't. There we are, and we look really happy right there, which is not how I looked before the wedding. See, the thing about getting married is right before the wedding, it's like a little party with your best friends. You're in there, and they're getting you. Your hair's being done. Your makeup's being done. People are, like, helping you into your dress. You're with your mom, your sisters, your best friends. Sometimes your grandmother will stop in and cry, and you'll start crying, and it's all fantastic. But one by one, they leave you. (laughs) My mom got sat. Grandmothers got sat. Best friends started walking down the aisle. And I walked out of that little room I was in. And I was alone with my dad. And at that moment, I could picture myself in the closet, on the floor weeping, staring into a mirror, and promising myself, I will never, ever get married because of the man I was standing with. My dad had some really great qualities, but they did not show up in marriage. He was an alcoholic. He drank a lot. Not always drunk, but drunk a lot. And he had a temper. And when you combine alcohol and a temper, it's not anything you ever want to be around. 
He was also addicted to pornography. It was beside his chair. I could find it by his bed. It was in his truck. He read it with me sitting on, my, on his lap. And all that played into him going and leaving us often to be with other women. He had multiple affairs. And he would leave us over and over to fend for ourselves. What I knew about mom was that she was the one who kind of held us together. She, of course, had her own problems and issues in that kind of a marriage, but she was the one for me that stayed. She was also the one who accepted him back over and over, and would I would just watch her sort of cater to him, like make what he likes and cook and clean and sew, and I just saw her so beaten down, and I saw him do whatever he wanted, and I wanted no part of it. And here I am standing with him, and I literally got to where he was and started backing up and got to where the door was right behind me with my hand on the knob. I was so close to bolting. When Wayne broke with tradition and stepped into the aisle toward me, and I could breathe again. I could remember that I wasn't marrying man. I wasn't marrying my dad. I was marrying the best guy I had ever met. And I had already put him through some hoops to figure out if this would be true. (laughs) And he was really, really a great guy. But here's what I know now. I was right. (laughs) This is hard. This is the most complicated, the most difficult the hardest relationship I have ever been in. Marrying a really great person helps. Can I just give you one quick piece of advice? Don't marry a jerk, male or female. Marry someone who's really kind. It helps a lot. He was really nice. I wanted to be nice. Wasn't yet, but I wanted to be nice. And he was really, really kind. But, It won't save you from all the pain of marriage to marry a really nice person. Because marriage is actually supposed to cause you pain. Isn't that encouraging? I know, just run out and get married now, right? Especially if you're in service and you heard, get married quick, and I'm over here going, good luck to you. No, here's what I mean by that. Marriage is given in part to sanctify us, to change us into Christ's image. And if you've heard me say anything from here, surely you have heard this. Sanctification does not happen by taking a little bit patient you and making you a little more and more patient. You're sort of kind with your words, but you know you really need to work on being more kind. This is not about you getting prettier and prettier, better and better, and more and more perfect. This is about God putting you to death. Sanctification is causing you to die more and more and more, and Christ in you to be formed more and more and more. Your personality doesn't have to change. Your skills don't have to change. But the character of you will match Jesus when God is done with his good work in you. Marriage is a tool to make that happen. And it happens in hundreds of ways. If you told anyways, what are some ways that like Kirk makes Leanna more like Christ? Or what are some ways that Kevin has made... made, um, uh, 
Rebecca more like Christ. I was actually thinking Kevin making Kevin more like Christ, which is probably true too. But how has has Rebecca changed Kevin because he's been in a marriage relationship with her? They could name lots of ways. I'm going to focus on my top two. And the first one is this. Marriage increases your ability to forgive and bless when you're harmed. Has anyone in here ever been betrayed by a friend? Don't raise your hand. They're probably sitting next to you, right? They went behind your back. They hurt you. They betrayed your trust. They shared things about you they were not supposed to. They misused your things. They took things from you. They ignored you. They forgot about you. Anyone? Sure. We've all had friends like that. Well, here's the deal. It's hard to stay friends when friends do things like that, isn't it? It's hard to stay in. I want you to know this. Everything I named, I've done those to Wayne. All of them. And he's done every single one of them to me. Not one or the other or the other. We have done all of those to each other. We have lived together for 27 years. We have hurt each other countless times. And I don't know if you realize this, but I'm really confrontational. I know that's a shock for many of you. I'm really confrontational, and Wayne is not. He's, but don't hear me say like he's a coward, he never wants to face things. Not at all. He's just the type in the conversation who wants to pause and calm down and think, which is better, by the way. But no, I'm the one who chases him across the house and says, why won't you talk to me? And well, just tell me what you're thinking, and why won't you say something, which causes him to turn and come against me, and now he said things that hurt me more, and I'm more angry. And then I speak back to him words that are more hurtful and more angry and longer in length, right? Because you know me. And now we have caused so many wounds, sometimes over like a $20 purchase. Stupid. But that's where we were. In the three years we were married, the first three years, I cried and fought more with someone in the first 20 years of my life. It was hard, and it can still be hard because we're still idiots who act like idiots, but they're less frequent now. But especially in those first years, even though I loved him and he loved me truly and sincerely, and seriously, he's a really great guy, and I was on my way. There was a lot of us in us because we weren't even believers. But here's the thing. Then we became believers in Christ, and the standard just got higher, so our screw-ups just multiplied. Because now the standard is not to be nice to each other. The standard is be Christ to each other. And that's really hard. There are so many opportunities to mess it up. And you have done so in in this last half hour. Did you walk by somebody created in God's image worthy of dignity and significance and respect and say nothing to them? Because that's a sin. Has every word you've spoken here been spoken so that you can love others more than yourself? Because if not, that's a sin. So you've been here for 30 minutes and you've screwed it up. Now place you in a relationship where you live with somebody 24-7 you will screw it up an infinite number of times. Isn't this sound like fun? And when you sin in marriage, you've got choices to make. Are you going to stay in and work well on this conflict? 
stay in to love one another through this conflict? Will you work on it? Are you going to bail? Are you going to walk out of the room, out of the house, out of the relationship? Will you turn and attack your spouse, attack their character, attack their motives, attack them for this is the 40th time you've done this. You did this six years ago to me. You did this 16 years ago to me. Will you constantly bring up old sins and old hurts? Or will you be like this? 1 Peter 2. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it to you if you sin and you're beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and you are beaten for it and suffer and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. For to this you have been called because Christ did this for you. He left you an example. And this example is this. When you harmed him, he did not harm you. When you sinned against him, he did not sin against you. He didn't walk away from you. He did not attack you. He didn't revile you. He did good to you. And he was beaten for it and died for it. He endured with you. And he did not go to his father and revile you in return. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Us... No. We bail. We stop talking to them. We fight back against them. We destroy them to other people. We want them to pay the price for hurting us. Christ stays, loves us, sticks with us in the relationship, continues to do good to you, even though you sin against him a hundred times a morning. He sticks in the relationship. He entrusts his reputation to God. He trusts his body, his life, his pain to God. And believes that God will handle it well. So how does marriage help you stay and grow in this? Well, it's because marriage is binding. It's binding in three key ways. The first way is this. It's legally binding. Meaning, Wayne doesn't get to just walk out and never come back. The authorities will actually charge him with things. Desertion. You're not allowed to just walk away. Now, it doesn't mean that he can't try and dissolve it. But he can't just bail. He has to stick in and fight this thing out, even if you're fighting it out in court. Marriage binds you legally to someone, and they make it challenging to separate it. That's one level. It also binds you morally, though. You make promises to have and to hold for better or for worse. You promise before a pastor, before your friends, before your family, that when it's bad, I'm still in. That's what terrified me that day. I saw this correctly. I knew I was about to make a promise that when he hurts me, I stay. I do the very thing my mom did that I reviled her for. I stay when I'm being harmed. I was going to look at Wayne and say, yeah, I know you'll hurt me. I know you're just a guy. I know you love me. I believe it. 
But I also know you're just human. I know you're going to screw this up. He already had. And I'm looking at him and I'm saying, before all of our friends and family, I make a promise to you. I make a covenant with you. I promise to stay in for better. And I promise to stay in when it's worse. But here's what else is true. It's also spiritually binding. And this is one that's a real mystery to us. We can't explain how it happens, but it happens. And it happens by God's design that when you become man and wife, the two become one. The sexual union that plays out is just a picture of what happens to you spiritually. When you become one, there is no way to separate yourself from that spiritual bond. Just ask anybody who has an ex-husband. Ask them if they're free of thoughts about them. Ask them if their emotions are free from them. Ask them if they never think about it. It just don't cross their mind. His actions just don't bother me. Her actions, I just couldn't care less about. Oh, they might say it, but you can hear the tinge of bitterness in it. They wish that it weren't so. Paul actually tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that that union, that sexual union, bonds you even outside of marriage. And it cannot be separated by man. You can dissolve the marriage by man, but you can't dissolve the union of God by man. There's no way to except death. This is why we tell you, by the way, to wait for marriage because it joins you with another. But if you do it before marriage, it joins you with another without the protection, provision, and responsibility of marriage. He bears you no responsibility. You bear him no responsibility. And yet, you're now one. That's why we tell you to wait. Wait until you're at the point in your life that you can make that kind of commitment to them. Wait until you are ready to obey and stay true to this promise you're about to make. And then you are joined together, man and wife. The question is, will you stay in? Will you stay all the way in? Will you stay for better or for worse? Will you stay in when he's healthy? Will you stay in when she's a quadriplegic two months after the wedding, as happened to a friend of mine? Two months into the marriage, and he's now dealing with someone who cannot move her arms and legs and will not for the rest of her life. That's worse. But what if it's worse than that? And you're with someone who just harms you to the core of you. When someone's hurt in an accident, we still feel such sorrow and compassion and love for them. But when someone's coming against you like an enemy and yet you're supposed to be married to them, it's hard. Hear me. Hear me this. This is not what you owe to a guy or girl you're dating. Dating, whatever you want to call it, is the time you figure out whether or not there's somebody you can stay with. Does that make sense? You don't owe them the commitment level of marriage without, duh, the marriage. So hear me say, this is the commitment level you make to married, between married people, not the commitment you make to someone you're dating. But the question does play out, what does this mean for you today? Because we're telling you what it's like in the marriage, but what are you supposed to do with that yourself as you leave here? Well, the question is this. Do you stay in relationships when it's hard? That friend who hurt you, 
If I go back two years and find your best friend, go back four years and find your best friend, would I find a relationship that's kind of just fizzled out? Did they hurt you and you walked away from them and you just don't talk anymore? Have you badmouthed them to your friends? Whenever they hurt you, did you gather your troops? Did you start telling them all about what happened to you and how bad they were? So did you get have people pat you on the back and tell you how sorry they are for you? Because you don't get to do that in a marriage. And you're not supposed to be doing it now. But we do. Do you attack their character? Do you attack their motivations? Do you rethink the entire relationship? Wonder if it was ever even what you thought it was? Do you just let things just die off? Do you put any effort into relationships to maintain them? Do you even see them as people who might need a friend, be in need? Do you press yourself to do good to them? Because those are all the ways that you will when you're a spouse. And you're supposed to get started now. You think you're ready for marriage and so you're in a dating relationship now? Well, here's what I would tell you. I'm going to go find your siblings and ask how you treat them. I'm going to find your parents. And when you don't like what your parents are doing, I'm going to see how you respond to your parents. Because you're not a different person when you get married. Who you are to your family, you will be to your family. You don't change because a ring gets on your finger. When you don't like what your parents do, it's no different than you don't liking what your husband does, what your wife does. What do you do when you don't like how they are? When your siblings bug you, when they mess up your stuff, when they take things that aren't theirs, when they make decisions that don't, you aren't happy about, when you have to go do things with them that you don't enjoy, what are you going to do? Guys and gals, watch this guy or girl that you have in mind with their parents and their siblings. Watch how they speak about them. Watch how they interact with them. Wait until they get really ticked off at them and watch those reactions because they will be what they do to you. We're not different people when we marry. We just get more opportunity to be us. The second way I'm going to highlight is this. God sanctifies us in marriage by this, giving so another gets. You might say it like Jesus said when he was asked, which is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Or you could put it like this, Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Count others more significant than yourself. Why? Because of this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Because even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be held on to, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, guess what he did? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The answer to why we do anything that we're doing is because that's our image. Christ, this is what he does. He counted you and I more significant than himself. He gave so we could get. He loved us as he loved himself. He died so that you could live. Here's how some of that plays out in my marriage. I hate chocolate. And as if I wasn't weird enough, I know I just added a new level, right? I don't like chocolate. Wayne loves dark chocolate. 
Not milk chocolate, which is kind of okay to me. Not like milk chocolate, thin layer over like mint. I can do that. He would like a dark chocolate cake with dark chocolate frosting with dark chocolate on it with some dark chocolate shaved across it. That's what Wayne would love. So guess what? Even without tasting the batter, thanks to having children, I can make the best chocolate cake. He loves it. Also, let's add to the weirdness. I don't like steak at all. I know. But, good news, I know. It only gets weird. There's a list of things about how weird I am. It's okay. You don't have to be in my image. Just Christ. I'm sure he loves meat. Leave it alone. Hold this, though. I make steak all the time. And I make it in a dozen different ways. Ways that my husband loves. Ways that my girls love. I make meals. The girls were like, all. they all hit about the age of 17. And they're like, do you not like this meal? And I'm like, no, I hate this meal. And they're like, why do you make things you don't like? I give so you can get. I make it because four out of the five of us love it. Why would I not make steak? Your dad loves steak. And they're like, make what you want. I start telling them what I want. And they're like, after we're gone, after we're gone, make all of those things. (laughs) They don't like what I like. Now that they're mostly gone, I do get to make what I like. But I make steak. I don't like action films. There's another one. I know, I know, it just goes on and on, doesn't it? How did he even marry me? I hid all of these things, right? Listen, but I've seen every Bourne movie. I know all of Star Trek, including the television series from the beginning. Doctor Who, all caught up, just ask me. Star Wars, unfortunately, know all about it, all about it. Hate it, (laughs) know all about it. You name it, I've seen it. You know why? Wayne loves action films. We see action films. Of course, he's a football coach. It's like one a year. It's not that big of a deal. But I know action films. I have to bend so he gets what he loves. And this was not easy for me. But if he were up here, he could tell you the same thing. It is colder in our house than any person would like except me. And Wayne is the one who bumps it down. He also goes to see films that I like about once a year. And yes, they are generally showing in one movie theater in all of Texas. That's in Austin, and they usually have subtitles. But hey, he goes, he sits, and at the end of it, he says, it wasn't bad. (laughs) High praise. (laughs) It also means that uh, there are chores I don't deal with. I haven't cleaned a toilet in 26 years. I don't take out the trash, except when he's gone to Ukraine. And I'm like looking around like, anyone? Anyone? (laughs) But he does it, and he always tells me, why'd you do that? Leave it alone. That's, I'll do it. There's things that he knows I don't like, he gives up. When he was making plans, he already asked me for thinking about, thinking about Valentine's coming up, which is a miracle. He thought like two weeks out about Valentine's. I, I'm blown away by that. But anyway, he said, what's the restaurant you would like to go to? I named it, and he was like, I don't think I've heard of that one. I'm like, yeah, you haven't. <laughs> You're going to think it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But I'll ask him on his birthday where he would like to go and Bogo de Chow, where they like bring skewers of meat and all the meat and every meat. I will go sit and I will nibble. It'll be great. It'll be great. But here's the thing What if giving so that he gets means that I'm alone with children four months out of the year so that he can be with other people's children? That one's not been so fun. What if giving so that he can get 
means he comes home after a basketball game on Friday to a wrecked house. He got home at 10.30. He knew something was coming up Saturday morning, so he stayed up till about 12.30 so that I could work on this talk, and he did housework. That's not so easy. He was exhausted. That's not so easy. What if dying so that he can live means that I let him make the call about where that money is spent? Let him make the call about what we're going to do about that situation with our daughters when I do not agree with him. What if giving so that he can get means I eat PB&J for real for dinner for three nights so that he can have that money to go out and eat a huge steak dinner with the coaches while he's at a conference. I hate peanut butter. That's all we had. No, I didn't have money for anything else. That's it. That's all I have. What if it means not pressing him? Here's a hard one. I told you he asked me about Valentine's weeks out. It's a shock because for the first, and no lie, 20-ish years of our marriage, he remembered my birthday on the day of my birthday. That's not a good one. (laughs) Don't do that. Set alarms. That's what iPhones are for. It'll even say, like, one week out. You'll, you'll be so happy. But he, we were actually married before cell phones, so we had things called alarm clocks. It's, it's, I'll explain it another time. But <laughs> there was no one to remind him but me. And I don't know if you know this, girls, but when you have to ask your guy to do something for you, it sort of takes the romance out of it completely. That was where I was, and I hated it. But now it truly doesn't bother me that he does not remember my birthday until the day of my birthday. It really doesn't bother me. Or our anniversary. Or Mother's Day. (laughs) But Valentine's two weeks out? Yeah! Christ in him is being conformed. It's a glorious thing. I'm excited about this. But here's the deal. It's easy to die when it's about chocolate cake. It's not a hard deal. But when you die in ways that actually feel like death, where you don't even get to have what you want on your birthday, when you die to that, where you don't care, when you want Wayne to have on your birthday, that was painful two decades to get me to the point where I truly didn't mind. That was a painful two decades. Will you give up your right to say something to him about that behavior and just let him be a guy who screws up? Will you give up your right to be mad at her about what she said that hurt you and have a great night with her anyway? Will you give up because Christ did it for you every moment of every day? He literally died for you, and all he's asking is stop nagging your wife. If Christ bugged you about every sin you commit in your head, picture him in your head every time you sin, He's bugging you. Stop that. Start that. You failed. You failed. You failed. You failed. That's not what he does. Christ sees you as redeemed, restored, forgiven, past tense. He sees you as you will be, not as you are now. He treats you according to his commitment to you, not according to your your behavior toward him. Now, you can disappoint him. You can grieve him. But it never changes the relationship he has with you. Will you do the same? It's hard. But if not, here's how you can prepare for this now. Watch yourself. How are you with others? When you're with your friends, is it about you, your time, your wants, your desires? 
Do you lose so that they can gain? Do you choose to be in a group project at school with people who will lower your grade so that you can raise theirs? Do you give up what you could get so that they receive more? Do you choose to study with people who can help you? Or do you choose to study with people that you can help? You hanging out with people like you, who feel about things like you, who think like you, who have the same tastes as you do, make decisions like you, guess what that means? You're just like the world. It's exactly what they do. But being kind to those who aren't kind, blessing those who cannot return it, giving to those who can't give back, bless those who persecute you, pray for those who seek to do you harm. And I mean bless those who hate you. Don't think like warm, fuzzy thoughts. Go out and do good things to those who don't do good things to you. If you do those, then you are right now conforming your life to Christ's life. This is what he does for his enemies, you and me. And then he says, go and do likewise. In marriage, you just get a lot of opportunities to do that. That's what you can do. Prepare now. Give up your power and authority. Make yourself more vulnerable so others are less vulnerable. That's Christ. Marriage is an amazing gift. It's also sanctifying. Because you are in a binding relationship where you have to stay, where you have to work on yourself, but you also get to be worked on by another person. There's a proverb that says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Well, the same is true in marriage, but hear me, iron banging against iron causes friction, heat, sparks, and chips off pieces of each other. Does that sound like fun to you? it's not. It's hard. But I want you to hear this too. I love being married. And I mean it. I love him. He loves me. This is the best relationship I have ever been in in my entire life. It just takes a lot of effort to get there across a lot of years with a lot of dying to do. There is such grace. There is such pleasure. There is such a privilege of loving and being loved, of holding and being held, of supporting and encouraging, of planning and working and seeing things come to life. One of the sweetest gifts you can ever have is God choosing to give life through what you do, extending that grace you receive, watching it work its way into another's life. And having them grow because of it. There's every now and then across the years, Wayne and I have been together in the bathroom, like brushing our teeth before bed, or we're both in there, like I'm doing my makeup while he's shaving before we come to church. And one of us will start to grin, meet the other's eyes, and he'll like, he'll pull his toothbrush out and go, You're gonna go teach the Bible. And I'm like, No, 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 shut up. You're a deacon. <laughs> That's the stupidest things we've ever heard because we know that those two people were staring in the same mirror 26 years ago. And they were very, very, very different people than the ones that God has made today. Part of that, part of that has been because I'm married to Wayne, who's a really nice guy. And part of that is because he's been married to me And I can't really tell you what has changed in him because of that. (laughs) 
he's probably more able to parent daughters. I don't know. I don't know. He'd have to come tell you. Make plans to join your life to another. If you were in service, you heard, I heard, I wasn't there, but I heard somebody said, like, get married and get married early. Well, what he's trying to say is value marriage. Value it so much that you can get married early because you're working hard today to get married. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean just skip along and then just when you hit 19, do this thing called marriage. It means get busy. Watch your relationships. All of you are of age. Watch relationships in your life. Are you the kind of person another person wants to be married to? When I ask them how you are, will they say, she would make an excellent wife. He will make an excellent husband. Just look at how they treat each other, their families, their coworkers, fellow students. Look at them. This is a guy worthy of this honor. This is a woman worthy of this honor. Get ready for this thing. And yeah, if you are, do it early. But know this, no matter how ready you get, God will take you and join you to another, and that too will become one flesh. And this is a mystery. But I'm saying that this is Christ and his church. And Christ does not need cleaning up, but every one of his people in the church, male and female, they need cleaning up. And one of the ways that sanctification happens is actually in the marriage itself. I say this so you get ready. This can kind of sound like the downer talk, but here's what I want you to know. Go into it eyes wide open. Going into it knowing I want them to conform me to Christ. I want to be used to conform him to Christ. I want to be used to conform her to Christ. I want to be used by God, and I want, I want them to be used to grow me too. It is hard. It is the most challenging relationship I've ever had. But it is honestly the best gift God could give me second to himself. I'm so grateful for marriage. It has done a good work in me. I'm grateful to see how it will do a good work in you as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for valuing it. Thank you for exalting it. Thank you for letting it be the master display. Forgive me. Forgive us. When we are not the people we need to be to love others well, will you help these students to work well at forgiving one another and blessing those who harm you? And will you help them to see their everyday moments where they can die so another lives, they can give so another gains, they can be last so another is first, just like you were for us, Christ. You had all authority, all power, all honor, all riches, all might. You had all comfort. You had everything you could ever need or want. There was no lack in you ever, and it happened for an eternity until you decided with the Father that you would let go of it all to be less so that we can be more, to give so that we could gain, to die so that we could live. Help us to so see that, so value it, that this example that you've given us to walk in would just be so natural to us. 
but we confess it is unnatural. We confess our flesh, the world, and Satan are all against it. And this is why marriage is always in the forefront of culture. We are all fighting for a definition of this. Press into us, Father, through your Holy Spirit, the value, the honor, the dignity, the significance that it means to say marriage is a mystery, and I'm saying that it's Christ and his church. If you would do that in this generation, Father, we know that your son would be glorified, and that's all we're asking for. Would you magnify the name of Jesus Christ, both out there, in here, and through this talk. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.